We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, good morning. That was Paul. He works for us at Orchard. And I, I watched that video this week and then stopped by his office and said, Paul, you read the Bible like somebody who really thinks it's true. I love the way he reads the Bible. Hey, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Chapel. And it's my pleasure to spend a little time with you this weekend. You know, I'm very excited about where we're headed as a church. I'm excited about the vision and mission that Pastor Joe has put in front of us. I thought he did a great job in January kind of leading us in that way. And, and so he's taking a much needed breather and I'm stepping up for him uh, this weekend. And before I tell you what we're going to be talking about, let me put two things on your radar. The first is that coming up, beginning next Sunday, so this upcoming Sunday, we're going to start a series that's going to take us 11 weeks through the, the final 11 scenes of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to get into Luke and just kind of soak in it for a little while, looking at the last 11 scenes of the story of Jesus according to Luke. We're going to look at his death and his resurrection, his ascension, and everything in between. I want you to go ahead and be praying about that, maybe spend some time in Luke this week, just getting ready for that. It's going to be a great, great series. And then also this week, uh, circles are starting. The circles are just groups of people who meet all over Northeast Ohio uh, for uh, 13 weeks together to grow up in their understanding of God across and their relationship with each other and out on mission. If you're in a circle, heads up, it's starting this week. And if you're not, I'd love to encourage you to go check one out. You can find out more information by stopping by the Next Steps area and just saying, hey, I need to get in a circle. That would be great. Remember what Pastor Joe said, one year, dive into the vision for one year and watch and see what God does. And you're, if you're not in a circle, you're just sticking your toes in the water. So make sure you dive in and you get in a circle. And I can't wait to hear what God is going to do in your life. For now, what we're going to do is turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, the passage that Paul just read. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out, turn on your phone, flip it open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. And we're going to kind of take on an understanding of the power of an example. So Pastor Joe has just cast a vision for our church, and I 
want to show you an example of the kind of church that he's describing that God wants us to be. You know, there is a lot of power in an example. So many of you know, my wife Amy and I have five kids. Our third child's name is Sophie. She is a nine-year-old, a little girl, and she stands about yay high, okay? She's very, very short. She's precocious and, and plucky, but she's short. And, and last year, she asked to play basketball, which I got to be honest, I thought was a little hilarious because when you think of basketball players, you don't think of Sophie, okay? You think of someone a little taller, a little more physically imposing. But we said she could play, and when she signed up to play, her very first game, she scored 10 points. Now, in an NBA game, that's not a lot, but in a, in a third grade girls game, the, the score of the game, I think, was like 18 to 12, Okay. So she was dominant. I mean, it was incredible. When she came off the court, I said, Sophie, what just happened? And she said, Daddy, I was born to get buckets. <laughs> and I thought, not only is she a natural, but she's a natural trash talker. And honestly, I don't know which one I'm prouder of, right? And so she and I have kind of built a bond over uh, sports. I, I love sports, and she is learning to love basketball. And so every Saturday morning, we go to the gym together, and, and we play basketball. I put her through drills, and, you know, it, it is just helping her to get better at basketball, which she loves doing. In fact, just to give you a little example into how hard she's working and her personality. Uh, two weeks ago, she had to run some sprints and, and I told her she had to run 10. And after about five, I could tell she was dragging a little bit. So I said, Sophie, just, you know, five is good. And she said, no, daddy, I have to run 10. And I said, why? She said, because somewhere there's another little girl and she's running 10 and she wants my spot. <laughs> and I got to tell you, that warms my heart. I mean, that is my love language. I, I loved it. I loved it. So the other day we're riding in the car and I say, hey, Sophie, do you think when you grow up, you might want to be a basketball player? And she kind of laughed and said, no, daddy, girls can't be basketball players. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I've only ever seen boys play basketball on TV. Girls can't do that. I was like, oh, baby, that, that's not true. And, and she said, really? And I said, yeah, I'll show you. So, so I, I got on the TV and I found a college basketball game, Iowa State against Baylor, and she and I sat and watched it together. And while she was watching it, her eyes were lighting up and she was saying, Daddy, they're doing all the things that, that we work on. I mean, she was pointing out all the things that they were doing. I said, that's right. And she said, Daddy, if they can do it, then maybe I can do it. So the space between riding in the car and saying, I could never do that, and then saying, maybe I can do that, is just the, seeing an example. It's just being able to point at something and go, wow, okay, if that, if that can happen, then what can happen in my life? So here's where I feel like we are as a church. Pastor Joe has just cast this big vision, 30 years, all these big numbers, all these big things. It's tempting to say, oh, something like that couldn't happen to me. We couldn't be part of that. I mean, that, that's not really going to happen. What we need is an example. What we need is a church that we can point to and say, okay, if God did that in them, then maybe he can do it here. And we're going to find that example in the Thessalonian church in chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. And so as I unpack that example for you, I want to use three points. Just help us plot our course. So if you're a note taker, write these down. If you're not, no, no worries. Just kind of have them in your head. 
I want to show you first what made this church so great. Second, I want to show you how they got there. And then third, who's responsible? Okay, what made this church so great? How they got there and who's responsible? Let's start with number one. What made this church so great? Well, first thing I want you to see here in the passage is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, writes this letter to them saying he thinks they're great. Look at what he says in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. He says, hey, Thessalonians, when I think about you, I am so proud of you. When I think about you, it makes me happy. When I think about you, I'm excited about what God is doing in your church. And I know what you're thinking, big deal. When you write a letter, you're supposed to start it with something kind. But let me ask you, have you read other letters in the New Testament that Paul writes? Like, have you read Galatians? Because he's not kind in that letter. The letter to the Corinthian church or the Philippian church, he is going to say some really hard things. In fact, those letters, he sits down to write because he's not proud of them. He, he needs to challenge them. He needs to even rebuke them, not the Thessalonian church. When he begins his letter, he says, hey, you guys, when I think about you, I am so happy. I'm so proud. I'm so excited. Kind of makes you want to go, well, man, why? Paul, why? What made you so excited? And I think what we're going to see are two things. Very simple. Number one, they were real people. Number two, who were really making a difference. That's it. Real people really making a difference. Look at what he says in verse two. He says, hey, when I pray for you, when I think about you, I'm so happy and verse 3 tells us why. Remembering before God and, and before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you say, and the greatest of these is love, right? That, that, that's a threefold rhythm you see in the Bible a lot. Faith, hope, and love. But actually, this is the first time Paul's ever going to write this in the New Testament. This is the very first time, chronologically, he's ever going to write those words. And he writes them of the Thessalonian church. And he says, when I look at you, I see real people with real faith and real love and real hope. Here's what I mean. He doesn't just say, I think about your faith. He says, I think about your work of faith. In other words, he says, when I look at you, I don't just see people who tell me they believe. I see people whose lives give evidence of believing. Most people will tell you they believe in God. Very few people will live a kind of life where you stand at a distance and say, wow, she really believes in God. But Paul says, when I look at the Thessalonian church, your faith is showing up in the way you live. Like, let me give you an example. Now, I just want to be clear. This is an example. It is not a terrorist threat, okay? So I want to be clear with that. wouldn't want you to mistake my my intentions. Let's just say I told you that there is a bomb in this room. There is not, by the way, East Hall, there is not a bomb in the room. But let's just say I told you there was, and that it was going to go off in 30 seconds. Well, if you believed me, if you had faith in what I was saying, you would get up and you would head for the exits. And you wouldn't do it orderly. 
and you wouldn't do it calmly, you would flood to the doors. If you stayed in your seat, then I would say to you, what are you doing? Don't you believe me? And you might say to me, oh, Pastor Zach, you're one of my pastors. I mean, you're not nearly the best pastor, but you're one of the pastors. I definitely believe you. And I would say, I don't think you do. And you would say, but Pastor Zach, you can't know what's in my heart or what's in my head. Faith is very personal and private. You can't know. And I would say, well, are you suicidal? Well, no. Well, then you don't believe me because if you believed me, you would run. You know, the same is true of faith. And Paul says, when I look at the Thessalonians, what I see is a faith that is changing the way they live. Then he says, I notice your labor of love. The Greek word there for labor can be translated loosely, sweaty, hard work. Now, if that sounds like a non-technical definition, it, it isn't. I actually took it from a, a sermon Pastor Jim College preached here in 1988. I just thought it was funny, sweaty work. Shout out to Pastor Jim. But the idea here is that love, real love, isn't about what you say. Ladies, please listen to this for the guy you're dating. Real love isn't about what you say, it's about what you do. In other words, you wanna know how many people love you? Tell everybody you're moving. You'll find out real quick. Because everybody loves you in a non-hard, non-difficult, non-sweaty kind of way. But when, it shows, show, when there's time to show up and sacrifice, that's when you know. I'll give you an example. My four-year-old Graham, he, he is the alarm clock at our house, okay? And on Saturday mornings, I sleep in so that Amy can't, I mean, <laughs> Freudian slip. I wish I slept in. I get up so my wife Amy can sleep in. And so at some ungodly time in the morning, Graham's there with his little beady eyes staring at me saying, Dad, it's your day to get up. And every time that happens, my body asks one question. How much do we really love Amy? Couldn't we just get her flowers? But I'm having to do the labor of love, the sacrifice. Paul says, Thessalonians, when I look at you, you don't just love people. You, you do the difficult, hard, laborious work of love. And then he says this, your hope is steadfast. In fact, he's going to talk about how they are undergoing affliction. They're being persecuted. Paul himself, by the way, when he visits Acts 7, Thessalonica in Acts 17, is run out of the city. This is a city of great persecution for Christianity. And yet he says, your hope is like an anchor. It doesn't matter what they throw at you. You keep believing God. You keep trusting him. You know what he's really saying? Thessalonian church, when I look at you, I see real faith and real love and real hope. I don't see it on your church sign. I see it in your life. And then he says this, and it's really making a difference. Look at what he says in, in the passage. In verse seven, he says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us about you. 
Do you see what he's saying? Paul is a career missionary, and he says, there are actually places I don't have to go because people are becoming convinced that Jesus is the Son of God simply because they've encountered your church. Listen, i got to tell you something. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you can't stand Christianity and you can't stand Christians, let me tell you this, then you've never met a real one. Because when you meet someone who really, truly believes, someone who's really willing to do the sweaty, difficult work of love, someone whose hope is steadfast, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of racial unrest, even in the midst of political uh, infighting and bickering, someone whose hope is steadfast, there's something beautiful about it. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might say, boy, if I, I knew a church like that, and I knew a Christian like that, I might be interested. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me. That's what God wants the church to be. Real people, real faith, real love, real hope, making a real difference. That is what the community wants us to be. They don't know that, but that is what they're looking for. And that's what's happening in Thessalonica, which leads me to the next question, which is to say, how did they get there? How do you become that kind of church? How do you become those kinds of people? And the answer is very simple. You trade your story. That's it. You trade your story. I say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. All of us are living a story. Your life is your story. Everything that's happened to you, all the experiences that you've had, all the things you've done, the things you haven't done, the lessons you've learned, the lessons you're going to learn, your life is a story. We, we, we know that instinctively. We know that the things that have happened to us in the past have shaped us. We, we we're looking for our story to, to end in a particular way. We have a future in mind. We think of our lives as a story. But becoming this kind of church, becoming these kinds of people, means giving up one story in favor of another. Look at what he says in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols. That, that's exchanging language. You exchange one story with an idol for another story with God. Well, what, what is an idol? Well, that's kind of wonky language for us. We don't, we don't use that a lot unless we put American in front of it and some British guy tells us all we can't sing. Other than that, we don't use that word. But here's what it means. In each of our stories, something occupies the role of the main character. In every movie you watch, in every book you read, there's a main character. And, and that main character is how you make sense of the story. What's good for that main character is good. What's bad for that main character is bad. You, you read a book or watch a movie through their eyes. Our stories are the same. We decide that something in our story is going to make us happy. And we give that thing the role of the main character. So that if we're driven by work, we say, work will make me happy. Therefore, work gets to be the main character of my story. I will say yes to the things it tells me to say yes to. And I will say no to the things it tells me to say no to. 
And we become that kind of person. And so we might say no to our family in order to say yes to success. Or we might put family in the middle of our story. And we would say, the way I'm going to be happy and fulfilled and have purpose is if I'm a good mother or a good father, a good husband or a good wife. So, so whatever's good for my family, I'm going to say yes to. And whatever's bad for my family, I'm going to say no to. Well, what the Bible says is that whatever you make the main character of your story that thing is your God. It's the reason why you get up in the morning. It's the reason why you say yes. The reason why you say no. It's how you decide what's good and how you decide what's bad. But if in that main character role there is anything other than the actual God, then that thing is an idol. It's a false God. And one of the ways, by the way, if none of this is making sense to you, and maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and this is unfamiliar language for you, here's one way to realize you're following an idol. Idols always ask you to die for them. Always. If you decide that life is about what you accomplish in your career, you will have to die to achieve it. Believe me, I planted a church in University Circle in Cleveland. I was around first-year attorneys and first-year medical residents, and they were dying. They were working 90 hours a week. They were putting their entire lives on hold. They were giving up a decade of life in order to accomplish their goal. Why? Because their career was telling them to get where you want to get, you must die. We don't think of it as dying because we think the trade is worthwhile. But eventually, eventually, no matter what you're chasing, eventually, you'll start to wonder if what you're chasing is actually worth dying for. Maybe that's why you're here. Well, the Thessalonian church decided it wasn't. But do you know how they decided that? They found something better. Look at what verse 9 says. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay, he's the main character now. And and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Listen, I want to be very clear here. Everything you put in the middle of your story will ask you to die in order for it to give you what you want. But the gospel, the good news of all that God has done and is doing and will do through Jesus is that God himself dies for you. Idols always say, if you want what I have, you have to die for it. But Jesus Christ said, if you want what God has for you, I will die for you to get it. I will live the demanding life. I will pay the sacrificial price. I will come up under the anger and wrath of God. I will do that in order that you might have the meaning and purpose that you're looking for. Well, the Thessalonians ate that up. The idea that they could stop killing themselves for chasing things and instead find love and acceptance and embrace from a God who asks nothing of them, but rather gives everything for them, spread through them like wildfire. But it wasn't just that they believed the story. Here's the good news of what it means to become a Christian. That story, God's story, becomes your story. 
Now let's go back to verse three and look at what Paul says, because I want you to see that this triangle, this faith, hope, and love triangle is really just story language. Look at what he says. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. I want you to see this is story language. Here's what I mean. Faith, faith is an entirely past-oriented thing. In other words, the only way to have faith in anything is to be able to point to a reason that you would trust that thing. Don't believe me? Believe the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, who when he describes faith this way, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. You say, well, Zach, that sounds an awful lot like future language. You're right. But then to build the case for that, what does he do? In Hebrews 11, he turns to the past. And he says, by faith, Noah did this. And by faith, Abraham did this. And Moses did this. And David did this. And Solomon this. And the prophets this. And what's he saying? He's saying that the Bible is God giving us a million reasons, or I guess technically 10,000 according to the song, reasons why we would trust him. God knows that in order for you to trust him, you have to have a track record. So he wrote a book. So the work of faith is actually familiarizing yourself with the reasons that God has given you to trust him. But here's what's really cool. When you become a Christian, you enter into the story of God, which means your past isn't technically your childhood. Your past isn't your failures. It's not your weaknesses. It's not your skills or your lessons. Your past is this massive story of God that he's been writing. That's your past. Because your story, you laid down. His story is the one you live in. Then, if that faith is past-oriented, hope, which is the third part, is future-oriented. Why do I need hope? Well, if I'm the Thessalonians, it's because I'm being persecuted and I might die. If I'm living in 2021, it's because there's a virus going around and I might die. There are lots of different reasons in every generation why we need hope. But the biblical hope, steadfastness of hope, doesn't come from saying, just believe, just believe, just believe, just believe, just believe. It doesn't mean having your accountability partner text you, are you believing? Why not? When's the last time you stopped believing? Steadfastness of hope says, if the God who did this in the past, if this is who he is, and this is how he loves me, then he will do that same thing in the future. You see, when God's story becomes your past, God's promises become your future. And then, sandwiched between faithfulness of God in the past and faithfulness of God in the future, you are free to love, to work, to love, knowing that God will take care of you. And when you lose your motivation to do the sweaty, hard, difficult work of love, you'll remember that the whole reason you became a Christian in the first place is that the God of the Bible did the sweaty, hard, difficult work of love for you on the cross. See, friends, we can be this kind of church, but what it takes 
is us not just saying we believe the story, but living in it. Acquainting ourselves with the past. Believing in the future and doing the work of the present. But that brings me to my third point, which is to say, okay, they did that. Who's responsible for that? You might go, well, we have Pastor Zach. It's JV Sunday. They had Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's not fair. Well, when we ask who is responsible, I want to point you to two different parties. Really important you, you see this. The first thing is, you know who's responsible? God. Look at what Paul says. Look how many times he says it. Verse three, we give thanks to God. Verse three, or that was verse two, sorry. Verse three, remembering before our God and Father, the steadfastness of hope, which is in Jesus. Verse four, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse five, because it was his power and the Holy Spirit. Verse six, you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, it's his word and it's faith in God. Verse nine, you turn from idols to God. See, Paul overwhelmingly says, do you know who did this amazing thing in Thessalonica? God, because here's the truth. God is always going to be more passionate about changing people's stories than we ever will be. Paul preached one sermon in Thessalonica and he was chased out of town. And arguably the greatest church from his ministry was born. Because God didn't need Paul. God did that. You say, well, I wish God would do that here. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's do a little participation. How many of you would say right here, right now, I am a Christian? Okay, so look around. This is how many things God's done. Okay, so who's responsible? Check. They had God, we have God. So what's next? Well, the very first verse, the very first verse of this entire book, which we didn't read, says this. Paul, Silvanus, which I think Silas probably said nobody but his mom calls him Silvanus. Thanks, Paul. And Timothy, regular people. In fact, let me tell you really quickly the story of the Thessalonian church. In Acts chapter 15, the church in Jerusalem agrees to fund the global mission of Paul. They say, Paul, we're gonna give you money you go and you share the gospel around the world. Paul shows up into Thessalonica and begins to talk to people about Jesus. He gets run out of town and a guy named Timothy plants a church there. Did you hear those three things? Pretty familiar. So in other words, Paul was the Christ following friend. Timothy was the church planter. And the church in Jerusalem funded the global missions. That sounds a lot like Pastor Joe's three goals for us. Everyone, a Christ-following friend, every community with a gospel church, everywhere the gospel being heard. Listen, this is not our vision. It's not our strategy. It's not our method. It is God's. It's what they did in the first century. It's what happened in Thessalonians. And through that, God changed the world. The question isn't, does God want to do that? And the question isn't, has he shown us how to do that? The answer to both those is yes. The question is, do we believe him enough to lay down our story and to live in his? Individually and as a church. I hope, like Sophie, now you know. You may not choose that, but you could.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the Bible. You could have just said to us, believe, and left us to figure it out. But you didn't. You gave us a resume, a track record, a history, a story in which we can see how imminently trustworthy you are. Holy Spirit, help us to see the, the, just the dimness of the stories that we come from and the brightness of the story of Jesus. And help us to choose in response. In his name we pray. Amen.